Before we jump into the message today, I felt like the events of the past few weeks in our country and our world merit some attention and, and prayer. Um, the last thing I will do is make a political statement, but this last week as your pastor thinking, well, what, what do I say? What do we do to pull together the incivility and the grievous things that have happened and lives that have been lost and the violence? It's truly something to grieve to see the hatred and violence and incivility, the bigotry, name-calling, arrogance, intolerance that characterizes much of our culture. There should be no place for claiming one race is better than another, for resorting to violence or murder to prove a point, for elected officials behaving and speaking in ways that bring dishonor to their office. What God calls us to is to listen to one another, to care, to have faith rather than fear. We're instructed to take care of the powerless and the poor. And we're instructed in Scripture to value life, all life. In the last week, our president received some criticism because he said some things last weekend about what happened in Charlottesville. And some of the criticism he received was that he wasn't specific and clear enough about what really, really needed to be condemned. Not wanting to make that mistake, I'm going to read to you some things I came up with very specific and clear as to what the real problem is in our society. So listen and, and maybe see if you resonate with this. So I condemn and denounce the hatred, the bigotry, the violence, the incivility, the arrogance, the judgmentalism, the critical attitudes, the lack of care, the fear, the selfishness, and the oppression that exists within my own heart. I cling to the mercy of God, knowing that without His forgiveness and mercy, my actions and words would be as bad or worse than anything I see on the evening news. I pray for a growing awareness of the plight of others, of my own role in bringing hope and peace to this broken world. Perhaps when I have my own heart in order, I'll take to Twitter in outrage over other people's stuff, or I'll be the first one in a demonstration to show people how wrong they are about looking at this world. Many years ago, Billy Graham was one of several Christian ministers who spent time with then-President Bill Clinton, who was in the midst of a scandal after an affair with a White House intern. And Graham was questioned by a reporter who said, why are you supporting this man after everything he's done to our country? And Billy Graham replied, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict it's God's job to judge, and it's my job to love. Let's pray. Father, there's no question the world we live in is a mess. There's no question that you are grieved and saddened when you look at the condition that we're in, the way that people treat one another. It's not a surprise our sinful hearts take us there, and except for the grace that you give us and the mercy, we all would be as bad as we could be. So we thank you for the way that you protect and guard us. Help us as we look into your word this morning and as we do this thing called life together at First Free, that we would be men and women, and young people, teens, and, and children who, who understand and get the real cause of pain and strife and injustice and prejudice and bigotry and violence and it 
It resides right inside of my heart. So thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for the hope that we can only find in Jesus. Amen. That probably connects more to our text today than I thought when I first was mentioning it or thinking about it. Um, Today we're going to talk about brokenness. We're going to talk about the only answer to the real problems of life. Fifteen years ago, I was pastoring a church in Webster Groves, Missouri, and had a uh, guy came up to me and wanted to talk, so we went out for coffee, and I don't even remember his name, I'll just say Fred. So Fred and I were talking, and he was telling me about his childhood and his growing up and how tragic it was that he had suffered abuse. He had been addicted to drugs and alcohol from a very young age, had run-ins with the law. His life was a mess. He had been estranged. He had been divorced. He couldn't even see his kids anymore. Uh, Everything was going wrong. And then he he told me that he actually, one thing he needed to tell me right up front that he was required to tell me was that he's a registered sex offender, that I needed to know that as his pastor because his parole officer needed to know that and he needed to report back to him and tell him where he was. And so he shared with me what had happened. He was in drinking and heavy drinking and drug use years earlier and and partying with a lot of people in his neighborhood. And one evening he was at a party and there was an underage girl at the party drinking along with him and he molested that girl at the party. She told a teacher the next day who reported to the authorities and he was arrested, uh, tried and convicted, had served his jail time and was now on parole. As Fred told me the story, however, some, there was some dissonance there because he was, he, was, he was telling me this, but it was, it was a tragic story, but I sensed something in his heart and life. And then he started telling me what had happened, that he got out and, and out of jail and took a job, and the guy who gave him a job was a Christian. And this man began sharing the gospel with him and telling him how, how Jesus could set him free from all of his addictions. Jesus could set him free from this path that he'd been on for all these years. And Fred explained how his entire perspective was changing because he had, he had been set free internally by the power of Jesus Christ. He was now living with the mark of a registered sex offender, but he told me that knowing Jesus Christ had set him free from the chains of drug addiction and alcohol and anger. And he admitted that what he did was criminal, and he, he said he did deserve to go to jail, and he needed to have that conviction. But Fred and I, as we talked... Began to, I began to see the redemption and the deep brokenness in this man's life. And definitely a wake of pain and a wake of shattered lives around him. His sex crime was not the same as a pedophile who hangs out in the park looking for young children. It's one of the, one of the problems, just parenthetically, in, in our system. We have kind of one bucket for sex crimes. And so it's hard to tell uh, who those who are dangerous to our kids are. And, and we need, I think, to, to come alongside people with the gospel, even as... Like Fred, he was dealing with his brokenness and wanted to move forward in in seeking and serving the Lord, which he did at our church. We found a way for him, very known, very understanding, working within the boundaries of what the legal system said for him. We found found a way for him to serve, and then he said he wanted to help with a church plant we were starting. And so he went with this church plant, was part of, of serving in this new church, serving the Lord, even with the parameters of his brokenness and his criminal record. I wanted to share that because the story we're going to look at today, so often we talk about how God sets us free from stuff. 
And some of you might be there. Some of you might be, if we pulled up CaseNet today and looked at, you know, what's going on in the court system, your name might pop up. Some of us, we may not have there. doesn't mean we haven't done things. It doesn't mean we haven't been set free from things. But the text we're going to look at today takes a very serious look at the real grip of evil and, and sin in the human heart and the human life and then helps us to encounter the authority of Jesus Christ the Gospel of Mark, we've been encountering Jesus at various times. Last week, Don was teaching us from chapter 4, Jesus calming the storm, how the disciples were so afraid because they thought they were going to drown, and Jesus was asleep in the front of the boat, and they, aren't you, do you care that we're going to die? And Jesus woke up, and he calmed the storm, and they were even more afraid in a different way after that, oh, wow, who is this guy who he can speak, and the wind and the waves obey him? Now we're going to keep going with that, only this story is not about the wind and the waves. This is about the power of evil in our world. So join me in Mark chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. We're going to cover verses 1 through 20 today. Mark chapter 5, I'll start with verse 1. They went across to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, "'What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God?' Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had come to him and said, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding nearby on a hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us into those pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. So Jesus and his his disciples made it to the other side, this area known as the Decapolis. The city was probably further inland, but this is the area that Jesus comes. Immediately, um, this man, one of the other gospels says two men, but one, two men, uh, one man came running up to Jesus that Mark is talking about here and immediately identifies Jesus as the Son of, man, the Son of God and asks, what do you want with me? The text describes this man as having an unclean spirit. He was an outcast from society, probably judged, condemned. Nobody could, nobody could deal with him. Definitely paints a picture of a man who was broken and troubled. He would break through the chains that they used to restrain him. Devices the people used to keep him from harming himself didn't work. The agony was intense. He would cry out night and day, cutting himself because of his inner turmoil. He was a man that everyone was, everyone was judging, wanting to stay away from. Unsafe, unclean, unpredictable Jesus loved and pitied him, this man who was likely judged and feared by most people. Now, the story raises questions in our scientific age, doesn't it? Um, I mean, wasn't this guy really just schizophrenic? I mean, isn't that probably what this was? Or he was bipolar or some, some, there's something that we know now that they didn't know then. And maybe um, they didn't have the 
categories and classifications of emotional and mental disorders that we have. So he very well might have had what we would consider today schizophrenia, and maybe a psyche valve would show up a lot of different things. Um, that being said, along with whatever maladies he had, physically or emotionally, what Jesus encountered that's very clear is that there was a strong component of spiritual torment in this man's life. And we're going to circle back to that at the end, so keep that in mind. Regardless of what other emotional, mental, or psychological issues might have been going on, there was a component of spiritual torment that this man was dealing with. The New Testament doesn't use the word demon-possessed as we do. The precise New Testament description is usually demonized. Uh, That means in possession, under control of, influenced by the forces of evil in the spiritual realm. We don't have to fear this topic as mere superstition. Some of you might even now be saying, oh no, can't we like dispense with superstition like this? Just no, and we would invite you, if you're here and you think that, welcome, please listen, uh, and let what God's Word says maybe give you some new paradigms, because we believe here that there is actually a spiritual realm that's beyond this physical realm that we live in, and in that there are angels and there are demons, there is a God, there is a devil that actually struggle in this realm and impact us in our, in our own lives. Hollywood does not help us with the reality of clarifying what evil spirits are in the dramatization of exorcism movies and scenes in movies. They, they over-dramify all the wrong parts of it while missing what this story is going to tell us, which is the real key. So I'm going to give you an overview of what we discover through Jesus' interaction here and in some other passages about evil spirits and how we see Jesus encounter them. First of all, we typically find some kind of dramatic confrontation at the beginning. So Jesus, um, well, in Mark chapter 1, we saw one where a demonized man screams out when Jesus was in his presence. In this story, this man runs right away to Jesus and identifies him. I know you're Jesus. And think about it, this was God incarnate walking around on this earth, and so up till now, these evil spirits had been un, uninterrupted by the presence of God in a, in a, incarnate in a man, and so certainly when Jesus shows up, there's a little bit of hubbub, there's a little bit of fear in the, in the hearts of these evil spirits. So the spiritual powers of the world were on heightened alert. Then we also see usually when Jesus encounters and talks to uh, a demonized person or to to demons, evil, evil, unclean spirits, he often will use some kind of formula to expel them. Be quiet. Come out. What's your name? Those are some that we see in the New Testament. Other ancient sources, extra biblical, talk about these kinds of incantations which were commonly used. Um, spiritual, demonic spirituality was something that was known widely, not just in, in circles that were religious, but in the epoch of the early first century in the ancient East especially. Um, by the way, by names were important. That's why whenever there's an encounter, there's usually something about a name. So they come up to Jesus and say, I know who you are. You're Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. And it's thought that that was something of a power play. And, and think about it, if someone walks up to me and says, hey, you're John. I saw you, you know, you did this and this and this yesterday. That would be a little unsettling for me if it's someone I didn't know and had no, no awareness of. So the demonic device is I'm going to get the upper hand by telling you I know you and I know something about you that you don't know that I know. 
And they tried that on Jesus, which is a really bad idea, because Jesus like, yeah, you know that? I know even more than that about you. And so Jesus even encounters them and takes them in that very common ploy in the ancient East. Next, Jesus transferred these demons from a person into pigs. This was not proof, by the way, of the exorcism. It wasn't proof that God in Christ had delivered this man. We're going to see the proof later is that he's just sitting down here calm. That's the proof of him being delivered from these demons. But it, it's real, the imagery here is really important. An unclean, and by unclean here, I don't mean unclean as in unsanitary. I mean unclean as in unholy. That's how it's used in the Gospels. An unclean man living in an unclean place, a graveyard, tombs, with unclean spirits dwelling in him, and those unclean spirits being cast into unclean animals, these pigs, and these unclean animals now possessed by these unclean spirits being cast over the edge into an abyss where they die. That's the imagery here. The imagery is of ultimate authority and ultimate victory by the power of God in Christ over all that is evil. The unclean man, the unclean pigs, the unclean place, the unclean spirits, all have their demise in the abyss. Again, the theme here is Jesus' power and authority is total. There's no question who's in charge. On one occasion, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus, uh, and we'll get to that when we get to that chapter in Mark, uh, finds a Syrophoenician woman who comes and says her, her daughter is tormented by evil spirits, and Jesus tells her, go home, your daughter has been set free, the demon has left your daughter. There's also often violent physical convulsions or something like we see here, pigs drowning, People screaming, other aggressive elements are often accompanying this kind of work. Now, we need to understand that moral evil is always connected to the personal work of Satan and the personal work of demonic powers. In a sense, everything that's bad is bad because of Satan and demons, isn't it? I mean, there, there's a stain of sin on all humanity so that, in a sense, every illness and every injury and every divorce is, is the result of sin and evil. That, that's true in the big sense. But demons and the devil are finite. They're not infinite. They're not omnipresent and omniscient like God is. So, so they're in one place at one time. They cannot be everywhere. That means sometimes I get a flat tire and it's not because, you know, darn you devil. It's just because, you know, I just was driving these tires too long and didn't get them fixed and I hit a nail. And now, so not, it's not, the devil's not behind everything that happens. In the big sense, everything is a result of evil, but sometimes things just happen in a broken world. And not every event, even of spiritual significance, is the result of a demonic influence. It can be, but demons aren't everywhere. The devil's not everywhere. The demonized man in our story calls out to Jesus, uh, what do you want with me, son of the most high God? In verse 7, the NIV says, swear to me, more accurately it probably would be, I implore you, implore you, I adjure you by God, don't torture me. Don't torture me. So the demon was fearful that 
the Son of God's presence was going to result in torture of him. Jesus said, what's your name? Remember, naming was important in this spiritual battle, spiritual warfare. My name is Legion, for we are many. A legion consisted of 4,000 to 6,000 Roman troops. So thousands and thousands of demonic forces, beings, were unclean spirits, were attacking, oppressing, provoking, tormenting this man. As you can tell by the story of running around in a graveyard, cutting himself, breaking chains. There were more likely more demons tormenting him than there were pigs in the story. They asked to be sent into the pigs, and Jesus obliged. Let's jump back into the story, Mark chapter 5, verse 14. Those tending to the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to see Jesus, they saw a man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told him about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell all in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed." You can imagine the reaction, especially of these farmhands or the farmers who had these pigs and what what had just happened to them. They went in and told the town what's going on. People came out. This man who used to run around in this graveyard and cut himself and scream and torment and rage, the guy who we used to chain up so that he wouldn't hurt himself and others and he'd break the chains, he's just sitting there talking like a normal guy now. You got to come and see this. And they were afraid. Remember last week when Don was talking from... the the calming of the sea, how even after they were afraid when the storm was there and they were going to drown, even more afraid in a different way when Jesus calmed it down. It's like, oh, wow. We thought that storm was troubling. We've got a guy in the boat who can just speak and the waves stop. And that's what happened here. Like, wow, now we're really afraid. And they even said, Jesus, could you go find somewhere else to be? Could you just go somewhere else? Because this kind of power, this kind of authority is very unsettling. This Jesus landed on a boat and with his words, with God's authority, accomplished more in this man's life than all the rest of the townspeople could do by trying to chain him up, trying to fix him, trying to deal with his violence, trying to deal with all. Bringing the authority of Jesus Christ to bear fixed it. Maybe that's a good note for us in our own world today, isn't it? That's what we really need. They couldn't control him outwardly, but Jesus transformed him inwardly. That's what the authority and the work of the gospel does. So Jesus, as he was getting in the boat, this man came to him and begged that he would go with him. And Jesus said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And now he's had mercy on you. Isn't that cool? No, you can't come with me. And what a sideshow that would have been. I mean, Jesus' next rally when he says, hey, you guys need to listen to me and let this guy tell you what I did for him last week and think of what that would have done. But Jesus was like, no, I'm not going to bring you along to bolster my credibility. I want you to go back and tell the people who you know, your family, your friends, I want you to tell them how much God's mercy has meant to you. That's what this story was all about. 
This is not a story of the power of demonic forces. This is a story about the power of God's mercy. This is not a story primarily about the power of demonic forces. This is a story about the power of God's mercy. And if we miss that, and if we emphasize the wrong thing like Hollywood does, we totally miss what Jesus wanted to do. God's mercy. A definition of mercy is aid rendered to someone who is miserable or needy, especially someone who is either in debt or without claim to favorable treatment. I receive mercy precisely because I don't deserve it. I receive mercy precisely because I don't have any right to claim favorable treatment, but this incredible God has shown me favorable treatment in spite of my miserable condition in my heart that wants to run. God's mercy encompasses all of his benevolent acts. One of my favorite verses from the Old Testament about God's mercy is in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. He passed in front of Moses and said, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, the merciful and gracious God. I am slow to anger and rich in unfailing love and faithfulness. That's God's mercy. So Jesus might have gotten his boat and sailed away, which he did, but he left something that's really important. He left a disturbing reminder of the power of God's mercy. A disturbing reminder to everyone of the power of God's mercy because that guy was still there. He wasn't going away. And every time they saw him, they had to remember, hmm, he was the guy who no chain could hold. He was the guy who was tormented day and night, who was totally out of his mind. A disturbing reminder of God's mercy. Fred, who I talked to you about at the beginning of my message, if you look up on a map of sex offenders, you'll find him, but he wants to serve Jesus. He's a disturbing reminder of the power of God's mercy, isn't he? And I'm a disturbing reminder of the power of God's mercy. Disturbing because left to my own, I don't do anything good, but, but God touched me and delivered me, and now there's this thing left that's just to tell people what an incredible God who gives us this mercy C.S. Lewis described his life before meeting Jesus as a zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatred. My name was Legion. That's how C.S. Lewis described himself. So are you in need of freedom today? Perhaps you're locked in anger, chemical addiction, in an affair, depression, pornography, greed, any number of possible prisons that you might be in. The same mercy that this man received is available to you today. Call on him today. Let him tell you who he really is and let him make in you a disturbing reminder of God's grace. Addiction, shame, judgmentalism, people-pleasing, workaholism, love of money, desiring accolades of other people. Uh, demonic powers can no pun intended, piggyback on those things, right? Uh, it's not, demons sometimes aren't that smart. They just know, hey, here's a guy who's a workaholic. How about if I just whisper in his ear how much more important he would be if he keeps working tonight? Put in a couple more hours instead of going home to your family. Um, or here's a person who likes to drown their anxiety and fears in alcohol. So, 
go ahead and open that third bottle of wine after dinner. See, the demons sometimes are not that smart. They just know where our weaknesses are, and they're going to add to it. It's what I call kind of the everyday demonic. Uh, For me, I'll tell you a little bit about how it's been for me. Uh, I'm one of the things that I've wrestled with my whole life is shame. Shame, if if those of you who have it, you know it. It's like I'm not blank enough. Here's the expectation, whatever it is, and here's me. And so not man enough, not, you know, student enough, not smart enough, not quick enough, not athletic enough to make the team. Whatever it is, just not blank enough. I was talking to a guy uh, about a month ago who struggles with shame, and, and he, he said it well, and if you get, if this is one of your maladies, you'll get this. He's like, I stay up all night regretting and wrestling and telling myself how stupid I am for something I said 10 years ago. Because shame just binds you up. And for me, oftentimes it's when I'm exercising, when I'm working out or alone or, um, you know, in the evening laying in bed. And and the wheels start spinning and the tapes start playing of, wow, you really messed up. That was a stupid sermon you preached today. Why do you even do this? And all this stuff goes on. And, and, And then it hit me a couple years ago. Part of shame is situational, and it's, it's explainable because, like I shared with you last week and something I shared, my dad died when I was three years old, so I did grow up as a little boy trying to figure out what it is to be a man without a father. So that kind of makes sense, but then there's this additional part that a few years ago I just started praying, and I said, you know, Lord, there probably are a lot of reasons why I wrestle with shame, but to whatever extent these voices that are spinning in my head right now are the voices of some demonic influence. If there, is, there is a real evil, unclean spirit right now telling me these lies, I want to go to the blood of Christ and I want to claim what Jesus Christ did to me. And by the power of the cross, I want to go free. And you know what happened? There's relief. There's relief. Because it's not just the biological, physical, emotional. That stuff's there. But our our enemy and enemies and evil, unclean forces want to jump on that and pile on and tell us all that's wrong with ourselves. And so I call it kind of the everyday demonic. It's not quite as flashy as a big Hollywood movie, but it's more real to me. And so it's a daily reminder that I need to be praying and praying and praying and exposing my heart to the one who wants to win That same tactic can be used whatever oppresses you. Shame might not be your thing. It might be something totally different. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's chemical addiction. Maybe it's perfectionism. Whatever it is that that you, you really can chase after, you can pray that same kind of prayer. Demons, unclean spirits remain active today. The power of God's kingdom also remains active. One of my favorite verses in this area is 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The reason the Son appeared, this is the reason, this is why, was to destroy the devil's work. That's why Jesus came, to destroy the devil's work. So if that's why he came and we're followers of his, why don't we say, oh, God, I want to give you full reign to do that in my life this week. I want you to destroy the devil's work in my life, in my heart, this week, so that I could be the man or the woman that you've called me to be. It was said of Martin Luther, 
And Martin Luther is a good guy to look at if you need to know how to do this practically. And Luther, Luther had fights with the devil, literally. And some of the writings about Martin Luther say if he would be studying or praying, and he would actually pick up his inkwell from his pen and throw it at the devil. He would like see him right there, and he would want to, to fight him. But the, Martin Luther would say when, when the devil would start accusing him and rehearsing all of his sins and failures, Martin Luther would reply, is that all? Is that really all you've got? Is that all you can come up with that I've done wrong? That I stand guilty before God? Uh, There's so much more. And as the devil continued his accusations, Luther would write a list of all those accusations, and then he would take red, and he would write in red all over those that all of these have been forgiven, and they're all under the blood of Christ. And Luther said, with that, the devil was silenced. With that, the devil silenced. Let's pray. God, we need the devil silenced in our lives. We need the accusation of unclean spirits which want to render us ineffective in our lives by accusing us, by piling on in those areas where we're tormented. Would you please make of us what you made of this man in in Mark chapter 5? He was a troubling reminder of your mercy, a disturbing reminder of your mercy and your love and your power. If we could do that individually and as a church, I think we could, we could really make your name great in this community, in this nation, in this world. Please do that by your power. Amen.